Good morning, everyone. It's good to be here this morning, and as I get started, um, I just wanted to say thank you to this congregation. Um, most of you I have met now um, over the last couple months I've been on staff uh, at Crosswinds, and it's an it's amazing feeling to, to um, be welcomed like we have down here, so I just want to say thank you. And I've spoke a lot in front of many churches, um, especially as when we were missionaries, we were going to many churches all the time, and you always had that little bit of angst because you weren't quite sure the people you were talking to. And this morning, I just had this feeling of calmness because I feel like I'm um, sharing a message with people that I I know and and have welcomed me. So I just wanted to say thank you for that as we get started. Um, And so this morning, we're going to uh, continue um, in our study in the book of Mark. Um, And uh, Pastor Jordan has taken a, a break for the week, and so I get to fill in. And we're going to talk about a story and a miracle here that many of you have probably heard several times in the past. If, if you've been going to church for a while, or maybe even growing up in youth groups, you've heard the story of the feeding of the 5,000. Um, and it's really often a story that is spoken um, about when we're talking about God's great power in, in overcoming what seemed like an impossible task. But what's unique about the feeding of the 5,000 is that outside of the resurrection of Christ, it's the one miracle that is actually outlined in all four gospel messages. And the story talks about how it impacted 5,000 men on that day. Now, we know when we read the gospel of Matthew, he actually says 5,000 men, but then he says that there was women and children there as well. So we're really talking about something that impacted maybe 12, 15,000, maybe even more people on that day. And what's also kind of fun about this is the essential parts of the story, the five loaves, the two fish, the 5,000 men, and then the final 12 baskets, each part of that story is outlined in each four of the Gospels as well. And so many times when we see different accounts of um, activities of, of Christ and, and what happened in the gospel accounts, there's always a little variation there, and people want to attack those and say, oh, well, they're, they're different, and they're, uh, they're critical of each other, or they're inconsistent. And so what we're going to see here is we're going to see one story that's in all four gospels, but yet has the essential components the exact same. And so when you think about this fact that the components are the same, it's in all four gospels, it just makes you want to think that there's probably something here that God really wanted us to learn, and it was probably a special event. And there's an old story about a preacher one day who was sharing the gospel message to his congregation, and he was telling about how Jesus, with only five loaves and two fish, fed 5,000 people. The problem is, is that when he was doing it, he accidentally said 500 And so he proceeded on saying 500, 500, 500. Well, one of the altar boys that was sitting up front finally whispered to the preacher and said, he said, preacher, he said, the Bible, it says 5,000. And he looked at this guy and he says, be silent. He says, how can I tell them 5,000? They don't even believe it was 500 people. And so we think about what small amount of food we have and we think about how hard it is to imagine feeding 500 But now we're really talking about feeding 5,000 or or maybe even more people than that through this miracle. So this morning, we're really going to look at the compassion of Christ and how he not only fed for the spiritual, but also the physical needs of the people. But what we're also going to highlight 
is the responsibility that his disciples and each one of us really had in administering this blessing as well. So let's turn to the Gospel of Mark this morning, and we're going to be in chapter 6, and we're going to start at verse 30. So if you have a Bible with you or a device that has it, if you want to turn to Mark chapter 6, and then I'll begin reading at verse 30. So this is a story of Jesus feeds the 5,000. It says, The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like, a sh- like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered to them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, Five and two fish. And he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and fifties. And taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces of, and of the fish And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Let us pray. Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time with your word. Lord, we thank you for just the opportunity that we get to um, carry your word in our hands every day. Lord, we thank you for your presence here. Lord, we just pray that um, this be your message. Lord, and we just pray for open hearts and and, uh, open minds this morning. Lord's name, amen. So this morning, um, we're going to look a little closer at this passage, and I'm going to really highlight three different points from this reading. First, we're going to see, see how Jesus seeks rest for his disciples, especially during times of workload exhaustion. Second, we're going to witness the amazing compassion that Jesus had for those who come seeking him. And then lastly, we're going to see how Jesus really works through us to accomplish, accomplish his mission. So first, let's look at verses 30 through 32, and we're going to see how Jesus seeks rest for his disciples. The Bible starts here in our passage where it says, the apostles returned to Jesus and told them all that they had done and taught. And I'm really imagining this being a real joyous time for the disciples. Because if you remember two weeks ago, back in verses 7 through 13, we saw Jesus sending out his disciples two by two and giving them authority over unclean spirits. And he was having them cast out demons and heal the sick. Now, Scripture doesn't tell us how long they were gone, but it appears that they're coming back 
with many stories of what they have done and, and things they have taught. And so I just imagine them coming back with this enthusiasm, similar to like an excited kid at the end of the day who comes to his parents and wants to tell them everything that they have done and seen for the day, something that they just have burning on their heart that they want to share. And this is how I imagine these people coming back to Jesus at this time. And you'll notice here it mentions that they're apostles, not disciples. And apostle is really a, a great word here because apostle really means being sent, um, being sent or, or like a messenger of Jesus. And it's really appropriate, like I said, because here they actually were sent by Jesus as his ambassadors. And so when you look at that, that's where the apostles are. They were commissioned by Jesus to share his message. And what also is interesting, and I'm going back a couple weeks and going to build it to today, it's interesting also to see how Mark has really been putting these together over the last couple weeks and, and use a term that you've probably heard already is the sandwiching of stories. And Jordan alluded to this last week is this great dichotomy of mission work that's out there and the different outcome that happens when you're sent to proclaim the message of Christ. See, in verses 7 through 13, we saw two weeks ago, we talked about people being called to ministry and being sent by Jesus Christ in, in, in the commissioning that he gives for really life-altering mission trips or lives that we lead. And then last week, we talked verses 14 through 29, and we talked about this violent death of John the Baptist at the hands of King Herod. And now we see verses 30, and we now see the disciples coming back to Jesus, doing what he had asked them to do, and they were, being, they were excited, and they were telling stories of what they had done and they had taught. And I see these really as that double-edged sword of ministry that is out there. There's that glorious side of advancing the gospel message and, and participating in the amazing work of Jesus, but yet at the same time, we see with John that self-sacrificing and that cross-bearing weight of serving his mission as well. And so Mark is really tying the two of these together to really show us the fruits and the toils and the sacrifice of serving Christ. And so, uh, unfortunately, in ministry, it's not all success in glory. And Mark, or Matthew, sorry, 16, Jesus is telling his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whomever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So yes, ministry can cost us a lot, including our lives, but there's a great reward that can be found in this. And so last week, Jordan was talking about what, what seemed like a meaningless but a great sacrifice of John the Baptist. But now this week, we get to see the other side of that. We get to see these 12 men who have been on fire for Jesus and commissioned and under his authority to spread the message and to, to um, heal people and to cast out demons. And now they're returning back. And it says right here that they want to tell stories about what they have done and what they have taught. And I, I just really think that these put together shows that, that idea of missions and martyrdom together, that discipleship and death. It's, it, the two will come in an almost inseparable relationship. And so while they're coming home with these great stories and this excitement, we also read right away in verses 31 through 32 
that it, it, it almost gives the indication that these guys were exhausted. And I, and I just think, once again, bringing it to our context, that anyone who's ever been on a mission trip before, and I know we've done many of mission trips here, that when you come back, you know, or I guess when you're there, you see all this amazing energy and, and this robust enthusiasm, and you go through this intimate, soul-searching quest while serving God's mission and God's people. But yet at the same time, when you return home, you feel like you've been smacked around by a gorilla. Do you not? Aren't you a little tired when you get home? You, you, you get home and the exhaustion just sets in, and you've got all these great stories that you want to tell, but the first thing you need is just to sit and rest and decompress. You need some time to recoup from that physical and mental and emotional drain that ministry takes on you. Is that not true? Those who have been to New Orleans and you just went to Fremont, you, you get so excited while you're there and you come back and you want to tell everybody about it, but as soon as you sit down at home, it's just like, whew, wow, where did that energy come from? And so that is exactly what I'm envisioning that these guys are like right now. And so Jesus sits here and says, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. See, he's seeking a time for them to take a rest with him. Because it says also here that many were coming and going. And, and they, they had no leisure even to eat. And so it seems like their ministry had been such a success that now even these disciples are starting to get a glimpse of, the, of what Jesus experienced with all the people coming to him. And they essentially were being peopled to death, if that makes sense. They're being peopled to death. And so it says that they didn't even have time to eat. And so he recognizes, he being Jesus, recognizes that they need that rest and restoration. And he wants them to focus on their own recovery. And so many times when we put such a constant focus on our ministry, it causes us to miss out on refueling ourselves. And so Jesus is saying the great demands that are on ministry from these people at this time and really on us also requires a great need for us to be alone with just him. And so this is a way that Jesus was really showing his compassion to the disciples and drawing them near to him during this time. And so the focus now is to escape and get to this desolate place. And so verse 32, it says, They went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now, there's really two things in here that I want to highlight that I find interesting. It's really notable in here. It's, first of all, it says that they, they were heading for a desolate place by themselves. And many times in Scripture, when we see desolate place, we see um, the, the aspect of a desert or a wilderness and people getting away for a time of rest and restoration and maybe even repentance and a, and a time of prayer. And so here, Mark does not spe specifically say where they were going. But like I said, we've got the benefit here that every gospel has the same story. So we can look at parallel passages and find out where they were going. And so Luke, the gospel of Luke 9:10, actually says they were going to the town of Bethsaida. And Bethsaida is a small fishing village on the northeastern um, coast of Galilee. And it was, as you can see here on, on the graphic, that if you look on the one on the right is where Capernaum is, and that's where really the headquarters of Jesus' ministry. And so they would have been traveling just very short distance to Bethsaida across the water. And now when it says a desolate place, 
I can't imagine they were going into town, and so I imagine what they were doing is going to a field or some kind of an area outside of Bethsaida where it would have been unpopulated and more prairie land. Now, the other tidbit that I find in this passage that I find is interesting is that it says they went away in the boat. It doesn't say they went away in a boat. It says they went away in the boat. And if you read the Gospel of Mark, most of the time when he's referring to Jesus and his disciples on the water, he refers to it as the boat. And it's almost like he's insinuating that the boat that they were using was a boat that they used all the time. It was probably a boat that was known to the people. And so I envision this, and I'm thinking about this, and maybe this is more for Spirit Lake, because we, you know, we don't really have that lake down here. But imagine sitting on the lake. Have you ever been able to sit on the shoreline and see a boat go by, and you say, oh, that's Mr. Smith's boat, that's him, or, oh yeah, I know who that is, that's their boat, and you can kind of see where they're going. And that's what I really see here, is that if it's the boat, and it's a boat that Jesus and his disciples would have used, and they would have had as much popularity as they did, that this would have been a boat that people would have known from the shoreline. And like I said, if you can see, if you put the graphic back up, you know, they're not crossing the whole lake. They're actually relatively close to the shore. And so the people would have been able to see the boat. They would have been able to know who the occupants are there. And they would have known that Jesus was present. And they would have seen the course that it was traveling. And so unfortunately, we learn in Scripture that if the disciples were seeking rest and relaxation, they were to be sorely disappointed because as they were on their way to their desolate place, there was legions of people that were chasing them along the shoreline. Verse 33, it tells us, many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. So their attempt to withdraw from the crowd, can you imagine as they're going along the water and they see along the shoreline, because you're not talking a long ways, they see this legion of thousands of people that are actually going to where they're going and to get there before them. And so not only did these people recognize Jesus' disciples, but they're tracking along this boat the whole time as well to see where they're going. And you know, once again, and I'll point to this one more time, it's only about four miles from Capernaum to Bethsaida. And so it would have been a, a, a relatively easy journey, but it would have been easy for people on land to get from one to the other as well. And so I can just see this herd of people going, and it says they're on foot. So they must have been traveling very fast. Um, and, and so, once again, as I was thinking about this, I was thinking, how would, how would I be if I had, say, that crazy neighbor or that coworker or that relative who always needed something from me, and I just said, you know what, I need a vacation. So I take a vacation, I pack all my bags, I escape, I go to this luxury hotel resort I open up the door to my hotel room, and there they are standing waiting for me. How would that make you feel when you got there? You would think, I'm trying to escape from this person, and there they are standing in my, my, my hotel room waiting for me. But yet what's interesting here is that when Jesus meets them, he doesn't meet them with contempt. He doesn't get upset with them. Verse 34, it says he has compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. 
and he began to teach them many things. So this leads us into our second point here, that Jesus has compassion for his people. And this is the Lord that we serve, that he doesn't turn from us when we seek him. He doesn't secretly wish that we would just leave him alone with all our problems. He doesn't go to his bedroom, lock the door, and when we knock, he acts like he's not there. This is a guy who who has compassion for us and is always there, ready for us, even if we chase him along the shoreline. And so he could have been annoyed with the people. He was actually trying to get away with his disciples, and they prevented him from spending that time and reflecting on the mission trip. But it doesn't say he was irritated with them. It says that he embraced them with his compassion and his love. And so if you look at the original Greek word for compassion here, and I'm going to try my hardest to say this, splachnizomai. Splachnizomai. It's a word that just rolls off your your tongue, isn't it? So everybody... I will challenge you this week, use the word splachnizomai in a, in a sentence somewhere this, this week. Can we all do that? Okay, yes, this will probably be the only time I'll use it. But the Greek word here for compassion is splachnizomai. And what's interesting is that word means a deep emotional feeling that actually originates in your stomach. And so this word is used in the New Testament nine times. And every time it's used, it refers specifically to Jesus Christ. And so if you can imagine the feeling that you have for someone or something that is so intense that originates in your stomach. Is everybody thinking about that right now? You have a love and a compassion for someone right now that originates from your stomach from the pit of your stomach. That is what we're talking about. We're talking about this overwhelming emotion that he felt from his inner depth of his soul. And furthermore, it says Jesus said they were like sheep without a shepherd. There's a group of people that were without direction or purpose. These people were lost in their spiritual bewilderment, and they were lacking a leader to provide them a path. And the sheep really... Unfortunately, the sheep takes a lot of hits because the sheep is really a helpless animal. And if you're in your Bible, we're reminded that every day. You know, a sheep cannot, be, cannot feed if it's not led to a, a ground to graze on. If a sheep is not protected, it's open to predators. And if a sheep is not directed, it has no idea where to go. But Jesus is not insulting people when he calls them sheep without a shepherd. He's just saying that they're like lost souls that need a leader to provide them with a path. And we see this also in the Old Testament many, many times. In the book of Numbers, we see Moses imploring to the Lord to send a leader for his people. It says, he spoke to the Lord, this is Numbers 27, he spoke to the Lord saying, let the Lord, the God of spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as, a, as sheep that have no shepherd. So Moses had this feeling for his people that he's imploring to the Lord to send them a, a shepherd so that they would not walk aimlessly in the wilderness. And we also see it in Ezekiel 34. The Bible actually says, sheep without a shelter are scattered across the face of the earth and become food 
for wild beasts. That's what happens when sheep do not have a shepherd. And so what we see here from the compassion of Jesus is that he's that shepherd to lead and feed his sheep. And so Jesus' attempt to get away with his disciples was, um, was blocked by these people. But what's interesting is when the urgent duty calls for him to service, he willingly puts aside his own personal agenda and he redirects his attention to teaching and caring for this shepherdless flock that's in front of him. And it says he began to teach them many things. See, he saw their spiritual hunger. And so he fed them with the spiritual truth of repentance and the eternity of heaven. And he saw their souls needed nourishment. And so he filled them by teaching many things. And Jesus doesn't just talk about compassion. He lives it. And so I I just think about that is that are we the type of people, are we the church, the congregation that cares for people with the same compassion that Jesus does? Are we ones that when we see people in need or when they come to us, that we put aside our own personal agenda to compassionately care for this flock? And have we ever felt that intense feeling in our stomach for someone who needed us and so we were led or we even yearned to be a shepherd and care for them. See, that role looks different for every single one of us here. Every single one of us has a different role in God's kingdom. But what's not, what does not come true is the fact that we are relinquished of whatever role God calls us to care for, uh, for the others in our congregation. And so I just pray that we will be a group of people that will care for others with that same compassion that Jesus shows here. And, but he didn't just care for their spiritual needs. Now we go into the fact that he's now looking at their physical needs. In verse 35, it says, when it grew late. So now we're presuming that he had been teaching for quite a while, and it's getting late in the day. And in the Jewish culture, this is the time when they would have eaten their main meal. And so I'm sure hunger was starting to set in. And so even now in verse 36, we see those same disciples. And what are they doing? They are more than content with sending the crowd away and telling them to fend for themselves. And I just imagine this conversation going on. These disciples come to Jesus and saying, "Um, Jesus, it's it's getting late and, and you've been teaching for a long time. It appears the people are hungry and you know we've been starving all day. That Can we just wrap this up and go ahead and send everybody away for the day and, and be done with this? And you know, while Jesus is in control at all times, I find it remarkable how many times we find the disciples feel like it's their responsibility to tell Jesus what he should be doing. And on this day, they're telling him, maybe it's time for you to stop teaching and let's go ahead and send everybody away. But Jesus, as a good shepherd, is not going to send away a flock that's hungry. And so he, re- he replies to them in verse 37 saying, you give them something to eat. See, Jesus had fed them spiritually all day long, and now he's giving the task to the disciples to feed them physically. And so what's interesting is that the Greek word here, the you, we read it as, you give them something to eat. 
But if you read it in the Greek, it's a very emphatic and imperative and a commanding you. Like you give them something to eat. So this is him actually calling them to an action of this crisis that is starting to come forth. And so he's ordering them to take this task and feed them. So the disciples, this is completely unreasonable. It's, it's an almost impossible task. But how many times is leading and feeding the people of God, it's not a task of what's reasonable. It's a task of being faithful to the commands that God has given us. And so this leads us into the third point of God works through us. But this is a point that obviously the disciples did not notice. They did not see God working through them to bless the people. So their initial response here is, are you kidding me? You know, I'm sure they didn't literally say that, but can you imagine the shock? Here's a crowd that I talked about earlier, 12, 15,000 people, maybe even more. And he's telling them, you give them something to eat. And the first thing they think of is, how much money would it take to feed this crowd? Scripture says, it says, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And so once again, if we look at the parallel passage in the Gospel of John, chapter 6, it actually identifies Philip as the naysayer. So here we just see that it's the disciples, but John says, oh no, it was Philip who said this. And so Philip is the one who comes and says, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. And so just so we have it in perspective, 200 denarii at this time was equivalent of about seven months worth of wages for the common laborer. And so, and, and also if you remember two weeks ago in the text, we talked about Mark 6, 8, it says Jesus told the, the disciples when they went on their mission, they were not to take any bread, they were not to take a bag, they were not to take any food on their mission, that, that everything would be provided for them. So they're looking at him now and they're saying, you want us to provide food for 15,000 people plus it would take almost seven months worth of wages. And oh, by the way, let me remind you, when you first sent us on this mission, you told us not to take anything. So you can imagine when they're standing there, they're saying, how is this anything that we can do? And so they're not responding with faith. They're responding with almost desperation of what do we do here, Jesus? And so he tells them, you go and see and you see what's available and so John 6, 9, it tells us, well, they, they find five loaves and the two fish, but John 6, 9 tells us that they found it from a young boy um, in the crowd, but then once again, the disciples come to them and says, what are they? What are five, fish and, or five loaves and two fish for so many people? And we're not talking about large loaves of bread, and we're not talking about these huge fish from the Sea of Galilee. The, it actually says that they're barley loaves, which if you don't know what a barley loaf is, it's a very uh, cheap, coarse grain. It's a very small piece of bread, kind of flat like a, like a pita bread. And the, the fish that we're talking about are closer to like two sardines. So, you know, these were the staples of the diet to the people at this day, but it was hardly enough to feed this crowd. And so I imagine the disciples standing in front of Jesus with essentially a bag of mini muffins. Do we all know what mini muffins are? Okay, standing with a bag of mini muffins and two sardines. 
So if you can imagine, I'm holding these right now, and we're going to feed the town of Spencer. It's essentially what we're talking about, right? Isn't the, isn't the population of Spencer about 15,000 plus people? So we're talking about a bag of mini muffins, and we're talking about two sardines, and we're going to go to the town center of Spencer, downtown, and we're going to tell everybody who lives here, why don't you come downtown? Because with these two things, I'm going to feed everybody. That is what's amazing about this. But the other aspect is, now let's think about from the disciples. They had just returned from this mission trip. They had just been commissioned by Jesus. They were just out there doing these amazing works at his authority. They're casting out demons. They're healing the sick. They've got all these great stories. But yet we come back to this and, and Jesus challenges them one time and not once does it say, hey, God, hey Jesus, I know you just commissioned us to do this great works, so can you help us out here? It's like they almost forgot what they were just doing. They didn't even think to ask him for assistance. And they had just come back from a mission trip that they were so excited about all the things that they had done in his name. And then when they're challenged with another task, they forget that they're standing with the person who authorized them on this. It's just amazing how short-sighted they are. And we stand here today, 2,000 years later, and we read our Bibles, and we just scoff at their limited perspective. And like, are you guys not even paying attention to what even happened? Because if I was there, this would have been easy because I would have seen that God was doing all this stuff. And so it's real easy for us to look back on the disciples sometimes and say, man, why did they not get this? It's just right there. Man, these guys are just out there. And then you think about, okay, when was that time that God challenged you with a task? And the first thing that you did was you checked your pockets to see what kind of physical, emotional, or mental currency that did, did you have to give to this? How many times has God called us into service and the first thing we said was, God, I don't think that task can be done. And so we sit there and look back on the disciples and sometimes we're a little critical that they missed all this stuff and yet we miss it as well. And, and what's the beauty of this though is <clears throat> Jesus was not uh, phased by their negativity and he's not phased by ours and he also didn't look down upon the limited resources that were given to him. He very calmly collected and gathered the crowds and commanded them to sit in groups of 50 and 100. He took the loaves and the two fish. He looked to heaven. He gave thanks and he broke the bread. And lastly, he gave the food to the disciples to give to the people. And the scripture says that they all ate and we're satisfied. And now one thing I want to look at is the, the progression of order. He didn't give thanks after everybody was fed. He gave thanks for what little was provided in front of him. It seems like a minor point, but it's a point that he's saying, I didn't give thanks after it was done. I took what was given to me, and I said a blessing, and then he broke it and handed it out. So he gave thanks for what little was provided. And he was never at a loss for a solution. He was merely calling the action of the disciples into helping, help feeding his flock. So he took what little 
man was able to give him, and he fed thousands in the process. And so what we have to remember is God's power is not limited by our resources. What little we bring him does not limit what God can do. And here, I'm going to back up last week again, and I want you to see the difference, of the, similar, or the difference in the two banquets that we had going on. Herod's banquet that we talked about last week, and now the banquet that we see going on now. You know, last week we learned of King Herod's banquet, and it was an elaborate festival for the special people and the elite and the nobility, and it really came with a message of sin, debauchery, and death at the end. And now we see the converse of that. We see Jesus' feast that's on the countryside for the masses of people that are coming to him. And what we see is him feeding them spiritually and physically with a message of life. And um, in the feast, it says that he gathered the groups on the green grass. And the Greek word here actually Set, it literally means that he, he organized them by garden plot, by garden plot, by garden plot. If you can imagine a, a garden with these nice square um, or rectangle plots of, of uh, plants, that's how he neatly organized the group, settling them in the pasture land so that the disciples could feed them. And um, it also mentions many times as we led into this that they were going for a desolate place but here it actually says that he was taking them to this plush green grass. And so when I think desolate, I don't really think of a nice prairie land to lay back on and enjoy this meal. And so when I put these together, it really brings me back to Psalm 23. Really the first three stanzas of Psalm 23, as many probably can quote it along with me. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Isn't this kind of what's going on here? The Lord is my shepherd. Jesus saw them as sheep without a shepherd, and so he has compassion on them, and he teaches them many things. It says, I shall not want. He has people that eat until they're satisfied. And the word here means that they were full it's not like, hey, this is going to tide me over until I can get somewhere else. They actually ate until they were satisfied. He makes me lie down in green pastures. They're out in the desolate area, and the scripture even says that he has organized them and commanded them to sit in the green grass. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. That kind of goes back to what we were initially talking about, how he was gathering the, the disciples to him for a time of rest and restoration. And he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And we talk about how the sheep are led along the path by their shepherd. And so now I know that I've gone through some of this, the final um, passages rather quickly, and, and I didn't identify all the integral details in there, because if we did, we'd probably be here until well into the afternoon. And I can imagine if I did that, I would be the only one here well into the afternoon. Um, but what I want you to see here is that Jesus, at the end of this, took what was given to him, he blessed it, and then he, um, he administered his blessing to the people through the, the disciples. And Jesus could have created this food out of nothing. And we know in the Old Testament that he could have dropped the manna from the air for these people. And we know that he could have put in 
put a loaf of bread miraculously in the hands of everyone there, but he didn't. What he chose to do in this miracle is take what little human resources were available and administer the blessing of the miracle through the hands of the disciples. And so when the feast was finished and the disciples had finished their task, there was enough left over. It says there was 12 baskets for each of them to have their own. So although the disciples were unbelieving and unwilling in the beginning, they played an absolute important and an active role in this miracle. And initially, they tried to send the crowd away and made them fend for themselves for food. And they even said the task of, of feeding them was unreasonable. But yet Jesus chose to use them in the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. And this was just another time he was training them for the mission. And we look at this and we are amazed. And yet here in two weeks, because we'll have Easter next week, we're going to see more stories where it's going to say the disciples, they just didn't get it. And so it's just another thing of what he was training them to be. And so he uses us in his ministry on earth and he sends us out as ambassadors with his mission. And so I like 2 Corinthians 5, 20 through 21. It says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled with God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, we commit what little we have and God delights in using ordinary people with ordinary gifts and ordinary skills to spread his blessing of salvation amongst the people. So I'm going to leave you with one, what I think is a great quote from Charles Spurgeon. And he wrote, Truly, he who writes this comment has often felt as if he had neither loaf nor fish, and yet for some 40 years and more, he has been a full-handed waiter at the king's great banquet. Many times we will feel like we have no loaf or no fish, and yet we can still be used as a waiter at the Lord's great banquet. So let us pray. Lord, we thank you for this time this morning to look at your message. Lord, we thank you for uh, the opportunities that you give each and every one of us to be a blessing to this people. Lord, we just pray that you'll use each and every one of us, that we can bring what we have and our weaknesses to you and know that the strength comes from you. We thank you for this congregation this morning. We thank you for this time. We lift up everything to you. In Lord's name, amen. Amen. Thank you.